<laughs> it's good to see you all today. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park, where we are disciples of Jesus to build generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. Of course, I'm Pastor Aaron. I'm glad to be back uh, after a couple of weeks of uh, a little bit of rest, and I want to thank uh, Caleb and Jesse for filling the pulpit for me last week. It was fantastic to have uh, such uh, skilled people to be able to fill this space and to uh, be able to lead. Um, we are truly blessed. So anyway, uh, but it's good to be back and uh, as we continue our series. We're getting close to the end of summer, so we're getting near the very end of the life of Christ. We've been following him all along this this summer, and I hope it's been a, a good series for you. Get to know a little about uh, Jesus and get to know him better and what he taught and what he did. And uh, today we're going to get into that very last part right before the final week of uh, Jesus's life and ministry. Before we do, however, our memory verse for the series, and I really hope this is something that's beginning to connect with you. We've been in it for uh, about two months now, but here we go. Just say it along with me. Three, two, one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Awesome. And let's test ourselves. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Very good. I know that you guys have this. Uh, of course, if you'd still like to have that uh, little reminder on the connection card, there is that Bible memory verse. You can take that along with you. Uh, you'll see this theme, though, all the way through. Haven't we seen that this summer? That following Jesus is uh, it's a great thing, but it does require us to follow him. And that's one of the great things. So we have to deny ourselves. And you'll see that in a lot in Jesus' teaching today and what we're going to call the Transjordan Ministry. Now, just to remember, like uh, a couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus leave Jerusalem uh, after Passover. He ends up uh, uh, Passover from um, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, and he was teaching in the temples. And of course, they tried to stone him and all that, and then he leaves and, and, and all of this. Uh, then we see him spar with the Pharisees. He heals a man that was born blind, a miracle that hadn't been done even by, from the prophets before. I mean, that they thought this was impossible, but he did that. He teaches about being the good shepherd and uh, shows us that's exactly who he is. And uh, now we see that Jesus continues his trip and where he's going to travel what we call the Transjordan area. And that's the first thing that he does after all this. And this is his final ministry tour that we have before Holy Week. And so in John 10:40 we read, then Jesus went back across the Jordan. That's why it's called the Transjordan ministry, because trans means that we're going across it. The Jordan is the river. And to the, where did he go? To the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And there he stayed and many people came to him. So if you look at that on a map, you'll remember that this is the landscape where Jesus was teaching, right? The, the, those bodies of water that teach us the Sea of Galilee in the top and the Dead Sea down below. And between them, there's the Jordan River. And you have those major regions that Jesus taught in, in Galilee and Samaria and Judea on the west side of the Jordan. And on the opposite side of the Jordan, you have Eturia, the Decapolis, and Perea, right? And what Jesus does is he crosses the Jordan River to the place where John was baptizing in the early days. And that's, of course, the Transjordan area is everything that's on the east side of the river. And that would be Bethany, uh, where we had uh, Jesus probably was baptized up in that area. Of course, there's a southern option as well that he's possible. Now, most likely, John the Baptist baptized up and down the Jordan River because that's what they would probably do, right? But, uh, but in the early days, um, that's probably where Jesus begins. And we see that he makes this trip then down south, uh, all the way going south along the Jordan River on the east side. And uh, now, as he's doing this, he starts uh, with a very small group of people. 
right? Because remember, his teachings at that point, last time he was in Jerusalem, during the Feast of Tabernacles, he got rid of a lot of his followers by telling them things like, you have to eat my body and drink my blood and all that kind of stuff, and that, that made people upset. And then not only this, but he was almost stoned to death. I mean, they were going to stone him, but he, of course, left because it wasn't his time yet. But he also has the Pharisees now out to get him. So a lot of his big following, a lot of people are starting to say, well, if I follow Jesus, it's going to cost me something. So it was a small group of people. And one of his, small, uh, his uh, b- followers picks up on this. And so someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Because these are the folks that know that he's the Messiah, and they're looking around. They're like, there's not a very big crowd here. Uh, only a couple people going to be saved? Like even his <laughs> disciples knew they're minority. And Jesus says to them, make every effort there to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. So Jesus looks at his disciples and says, yeah, there's not going to be many that are going to be saved. In fact, right before he talks about this narrow door, he gives the context to it, because you're probably thinking, what are you talking about? Jesus says, listen, the kingdom of God is like this. A guy's going to throw a party, right? And he invites all of his neighbors, everybody who's there, he invites them to come in, right? But he tells the, the salt of the people didn't come. And so finally, it gets late at night or whatever, and the owner of the house shuts the door. And then the people go, and they knock on the door, and they're like, hey, let us in. And he says, truly, it's like, it's too late. Like, I'm not going to open anymore. The, the, the time is done. And he says, I tell you the truth that... There are going to be a lot of people, there'll be a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth of people who will be shut out. The door was open to them, but they never came in. They didn't enter it when the time was available. Now that's something that's important for us to make to understand that, that Jesus is telling us, yeah, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to miss out of the kingdom of God. And it's not that it wasn't available to them. But there was a way in. It's like your house, right? Your house has a door, and if you want people to, to come over as guests, you expect them to come through the door? Right? And that door isn't a garage door, is it? It's not accommodating for all kinds of things. If you want to get into a house, there is a way in, and it's kind of narrow. And you can only enter in with the things like Jesus is like, this isn't big enough for a bunch of other junk or anything like that. If you want to come into to the kingdom, there's a way. But you have to come to God on his terms. And you have, can only come in when the door is open. And so Jesus says, listen, make every effort to get into the kingdom now. Because now is your opportunity. And he tells us the truth, that that opportunity is not going to last forever. As much as he said that there are going to be a lot of people who will be shut out, Jesus also said there are going to be a lot of folks that aren't neighbors who will also come in. He says about this, he says, people will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and will take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. So while some people would be those who would be most natural, they would be the neighbors, be the Jewish nation, things like this, those who would have the Messiah right there, Right, who should be following, who should be going into the kingdom of God, who will miss it. He also predicts that there are going to be people from all over the world who will somehow, who be not neighbors, <laughs> who would be somehow going to hear about this, are going to come in and be part of the kingdom of God. He predicts the church, which I think is pretty amazing. And that's exactly what happened. And we see throughout all nations that people have come and are part of God's kingdom, who have entered into that place through Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Pretty awesome. But we still remember when he says, are only a few people going to be saved? Yeah. Because salvation isn't open to just whatever we want. The door is narrow. That, that salvation comes. There is a path back to God. There is an open door. And the door is open for a limited time. And these are the days of grace. And anybody who wants to go through that door can go through it. But for a lot of people who demand there's a different entrance, let's say I'll get to it later, 
and this out. And so uh, Jesus says this, he uh, gives us a great warning, but also a great opportunity, what grace God gives us, that there is a way back into his kingdom. How cool is that? He gets invited to a Pharisee's home. Now remember, the Pharisees didn't really like Jesus. They were trying to trap him. Uh, of course, he's making his way down, and, and they're trying to figure out how we're going to get this guy. And so they invite him over into a house, and it says in the scripture that he was being carefully watched, right? They're setting him up. And so what do they do? It's, it says in this dinner that they had a guy with dropsy who happened to just happen to be there, right? And they're carefully watching Jesus because it's, it's on a Sabbath, right? And dropsy is a disease that kind of makes you all, you're all puffy, right? You retain too much fluid, and, you're, and all of this, it's a miserable condition. And so Jesus knows what they're up to. And so in Luke 14, Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of law, and he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I mean, he called it out. He knew exactly what they were trying to do. And he says, he, he, remind, and he, he, he challenges them, and they just remain silent because I think at this point, a lot of them knew it wasn't very good to argue with Jesus. He always made fools of them. So they're just like, what are you going to do? And so Jesus heals the man right in front of him on a Sabbath. And so then there was three lessons that he gave to the Pharisees right after he did that. The first one is he says, he explains to them that God expects us to be kind, right? It's permissible to heal, uh, to save animals on the Sabbath, right? If you have an animal falls into a ditch or whatever, it's gonna, you're going to go out and get it. He says, how much more a child of God should you help? That, that God expects us to be kind, not to use his law to be unkind to others. The second one is he tells us that God rewards the humble, and he does this by warning them because they were at a dinner party, right? And at the dinner parties, there's like you have like the, 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 the host and then you'd have these seats. And then the closer you got to the host is kind of the more important person in the party, right? You had the chief seats. And you're going to see that later on as the apostles want better seats, right? That, that if you're going to be seated right next to the host, everyone's like, oh, that's a very honored guest. And so the Pharisees were like that. They were very much always vying for position and all this. And Jesus says, that's silly. Don't be that way. Stop being so prideful and trying to build up that place around you. He says, it's just going to work against you. He says, if you try to get a good seat at the table, what happens if you're not the most important guest? Well, then you're sitting at this spot, and the host is going to have to come up to you and say, hey, somebody more important than you is here. You're going to have to go sit down to the open seat. It's probably at the bottom of the table, and you'll be humiliated by everybody. He says, far better off to not worry about those things. Just take a seat at the end of the table, at the least impl important place. Because then when your host comes in and he sees you there, he's like, well, you're more important than that. And so he'll ask you to sit in a more important place, and you'll be honored in front of everybody. And he says it's like that in the kingdom of God. And that we should consider, take the position of, of those who are humble. God is going to honor you. Let God honor you. But don't be like those who become all religious and all these things and try to puff ourselves up and say, oh, we're going to be right next to God and we're so important. And then be humiliated when God's like, that's actually not what I was looking for. The third lesson that he gives them is he says, you know what, that God sent you an invitation. All right, so the first thing he says, you God expects you to be kind and he wants you to be humble. And the third one is, but God wants you. And he tells this to the Pharisees. And he tells a parable about this. He says, it's like God was like this guy, again, who throws a big party. Right? And he sends out his invitation to his best friends, which would be the Pharisees, the ones that should be closest. And every one of them came up with a lame excuse. I'm getting married. Come on. Right? I've got to go and you know, take care of the harvest or whatever these lame excuses were. 
They didn't show up to the party. They all had all these excuses. And so the, the guy who was throwing the party gets upset about this. He says, okay, fine. Don't go to my friends. Just go to the people in the village. Just anybody who's going to come. Just fill the space up. So they go and invite all the people in the village. And the, they come in, and they are part of the party. And then the owner's like, you know what? I want to make sure. I'm going to make an exclamation point on this for those people who I thought were my friends who wouldn't show up. I want you to go out on the st- on just on the streetways and all that kind of stuff. Find any kind of stranger you can find. Just invite anybody who come in. So that way, this place will be so packed, right? This is going to be just a rager. This is going to be awesome. And there's going to be no room for those fools who didn't accept my invitation. What a warning to the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is invited to you and invited to you first. Just go. No more excuses. Just go. Because if you don't, God takes it personally. And you will be replaced. And after that, Jesus then goes and he talks about the cost of discipleship. Right? And, and at this point, the crowd begins to grow again as Jesus is going down south and more people are hearing Jesus' message and he's, they're hearing his words and they're talking about that he really is the Messiah and he's doing something. And so there's more people starting to come. And, and, and you know what? Jesus sees this and he is not interested in bandwagon believers. Never in Scripture do we see Jesus looking for converts. Right? He wants disciples. And so he, he kind of thins the crowd a little bit. He wants to let people know, if you're going to be my disciple, this is what it costs. And he says disciples have to be willing to lose everything. Right? have to be willing to, to walk away from their families and their lifestyles and, 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 and even their own lives if you want to follow Jesus. This is where he has that controversial statement where he says, if you don't hate your family, right, to follow me, like if you don't hate your children and compare, right, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to hate your children, It says this, if you're not willing to sacrifice anything, anything and everything to follow him, you're not worthy of following him. And so he says, count the cost, right? He goes on to say, it's like this, like if you're going to build a building, don't you create a budget? If you're going to build a house, don't you go through and you count the cost and you make sure that you have more than enough money, not just to finish the foundation, but you have enough money that you can build the whole house. Otherwise, everyone's going to laugh at you because you built this foundation and then you ran out of money and they're like, look at that fool. Or he says, how about this? Or if, you go to, if, an, if a general wants to take his troops into war, doesn't he figure out first if he can finish the fight? Doesn't he look at the troops that he has versus what the enemy is going to be and say, should we really fight this? Right? Shouldn't we look first and say, how much more should we be doing that if you're going to say you're going to follow Jesus? Shouldn't we look at what the cost is first and say, am I willing to pay that? Because if you're not, he's like, well, then you're going to fail. So count the cost. And then he goes on to say, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And some have misinterpreted this to say that Jesus is calling us into poverty, which is not the point at all. It's not a call to poverty. It's a call to complete loyalty, commitment, submission. This is what makes the door narrow. You wonder why he said enter through the narrow door? This is what it is. Everybody wants salvation, but very few people want to do what it takes to be saved, to actually say, Jesus, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to have faith in you. I'm going to die, die to myself so I can have real life. Well, Christ followers, according to Jesus, must seek his kingdom and his righteousness first and above all else. This is what we do. We follow Jesus. And so... We find that, that covenant uh, or convenient Christianity, which is too often preached, it's a farce. 
It's not what Jesus preached. Jesus didn't go out there and say, please, 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 please follow me. That's not what he did. He said, I have an invitation for you. It's an invitation to the very kingdom of God, a place where your sins will be forgiven, that you will be sanctified, that you will have eternal life, where you'll be glorified, where everything that, that you were created for will be there, and, and then some. Right? You will have greater joy than you can possibly imagine, that you'll be set free from all the brokenness and all the bad things that you were. Here's an invitation for you, but here's what it's going to cost you. You can't enter that door just carrying all your junk and expecting the kingdom of God to be filled with all your junk. Because that would make the kingdom of God like this world. And that would be a very small heaven. Can you imagine if heaven was like this earth forever? He has a call. And he says, if you want to call me, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross. You have to deny yourself. You have to choose to follow him. Well, the Pharisees hear this because he's talking pretty much directly at them, right? Because they had a lot of things. They had a lot of wealth. They had a lot of stuff in their lives, and they liked that. And, and uh, so what did they do? Well, what do you, most people do, politicians and those in our own lives, and probably most of us, when we kind of get pointed out like that, we deflect. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They're like, well, give up everything. Why would we do Look, Jesus is hanging out with sinners. And that's exactly what they tried to do is say, well, we're going to discredit him. This guy's asking too much, so let's find some way that we can throw some mud on him so that way everyone will, will stop, you know, maybe looking at us and, and telling us that we should, we're not doing what God wants. And so he, they point to the sinners that Jesus hangs out with, and Jesus says, yeah, I'm hanging out with sinners, and he tells three parables about that to explain exactly why he's doing that. And so the three parables are lost and found parables. The first one is the lost sheep. And then we have one is the lost coin. And then we have a lost child. And so we start with the sheep. It says, it's like the kingdom, it's like if you have a, a shepherd who's got 100 sheep and one goes missing, doesn't he make sure that 99 are in a pen or whatever, but he leaves those 99 eventually to go out and get the one that's lost. And if he finds the lost sheep, isn't he happy? Of course he is. Or he's like this. He's kingdom of God, it's like this. If you have gotten paid, and back then they used this thing called cash. I don't know if you remember it. We used to have it. And if you had a payday and you had cash and you had most of your money was there, but you dropped a coin, you dropped something, a bill slipped away or something like that, and you're like, ah, it's not all here, right? You, you set the money aside that, that you do have, maybe it's a safe place, and then you tear your house apart and you look for what is lost. And if you find that lost coin, aren't you happy? You're like, like, that might be, you know, rent. And it's like this woman had done this, and she lost, and she finds this coin, and she's so happy, she goes out and tells her neighbors, and everybody's, I found it! I found it! And says, this is all, how about this? What about if you have a, a guy who has a kid? He's got two sons. One's really good, and the other one's kind of a stinker. And the one's a stinker, tells his dad, you know, I know what, I want my inheritance early, because I'm done with you, Right? And he goes out and parties and squanders it. And eventually he's all living in poverty and it's lousy. And he's like, you know what? It's better back at home. My servants have it better working at my dad's place than I have it. So he comes back home as a servant, like totally, like doesn't expect to have anything good. And the father sees the son coming across the fields and he runs out to get him and he puts his signet ring on him and says, you're my son, puts the shoes on his feet again and wraps him up and says, let's throw a party. 
because he's happy. But the other son who was there is like, Dad, what's the deal, man? I've been here all this time. I didn't get a party. And the dad says, you know what? We're good. Everything I have is yours. Like, this is good. But my son who was lost and I thought was dead, was gone, has come back. Then he says this about it. He says, I tell you in the same way. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That there is a high cost to discipleship, yeah. It, it, it means something, but I want you to know that God is rooting for us. Heaven is rooting for you. That it brings God great joy when we come back to him. It's like a kid coming home. This is the way that God loves us. And let's not forget, we're all the ones that are lost. We are the lost sheep. We're the lost coin. We're the lost child. But when we come home, man, God is so happy. He wants us to be with him in that way. Isn't that cool? But we know this. Just, just because heaven delights over those who are lost and found doesn't mean that everyone is going to be found. Right? There is, per- there is peril in this world, right? And the peril is that we're not going to act when we have the opportunity. And so Jesus then tells this, this parable about the shrewd manager to explain this. He says it's like this. There's a guy who's a, he's a, man, he's a boss, like he's a, he's a very wealthy man, and he's got a financial manager that works for him, and that financial manager is mismanaging his funds. So the boss calls him in and says, what's this you're doing? You, you have a week. You're going to be fired. You're fired. Let's just be clear of that. And you have one week to get all the paperwork in order so the person who comes in after you can actually do a better job. And so this manager realizes he's been fired and, and he recognizes he's got a week. Now, he's got one more week where he's still on payroll. He's got one more week. to, And he could just live like life is normal or whatever and just live with a high life for that one week. But he recognizes his peril. He figures out, he's like, you know what, I'm going to lose my job in a week. And I don't have the body to do manual labor. And I do not want to be begging on the street. So i got to figure out, i got one week to make this right. <laughs> so he's going to use every resource I've got. So he comes up with an idea. And he says, all the people that his boss, you know, had to, on his, his accounts, he had one guy that owned him like, like 10,000 vats of oil or whatever, and he says, all right, here's your bill. You owe my boss like 10,000 vats of oil. Make that 500, right? Let's just, just mark that down. Just cut that in half. Another guy owes him, you know, some wine or something like that, and he's like, take your bill and cut it in half, right? He does this, right? And he makes all these different friends on the outside. So he uses the limited time that he still has and the opportunity he still has, and he inv- takes that and he invests it in the future. <laughs> now, his boss isn't happy about it, clearly, but appreciates it. And it's like, uh, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. But you were smart enough to do that. And Jesus tells us that we need to be, to be like that, not dishonest. But I recognize that we've been fired from this world. You know, we've mismanaged our lives. God's given us our resources, our time, our talents. All of us have sinned. We've all done this. And sin, you get fired, <laughs> right? Who gets to live in this world forever? None of us. We have a limited period of time to recognize your peril. You don't get to live in this life forever. You can't, don't get to keep the things that you have here forever. So in this time, use the opportunity that you do have to invest in what comes next, right? Be smart and tells us to be like that. And in so doing, he then tells us it's important that we recognize who our real boss then is. Because in this world, a lot of times we live for ourselves or for our money or for, for our 
comforts or those types of things, right? We've, we've invested our whole lives, a lot of us, our careers, everything, to build up nest eggs or to build up health or whatever it is, right? We serve ourselves in this life and realize that that boss fired us, <laughs> that we have a different boss now, right? We have a different kingdom that we're, what's coming next is what really is going to matter because we don't have a future here. And so then Jesus, in that context, says that no one can serve two masters, right? You can't serve both of them. This shrewd manager, could he serve both his current boss and his future bosses? No, he had to pick one, right? And so he, this shrewd manager did something dishonest. He ripped off his first boss in order to invest fully in the second. But I would say this, you can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And he goes on, you can't serve both God and money. That's the context of this. This is not just a financial verse. This is an issue of, of recognizing the reality of of our eternity. You're going to live for this life and your money and your things, or you're going to live for God and his kingdom and those things, but you can't do both. So you could be like the, a manager who got fired and say, well, I'm going to live this last week. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to do the best I can this last week when you know you already lost your job. Or you're going to find a new boss <laughs> and try to live for them. After this, then Jesus, he gives the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? again, to show the importance of living for what comes next, that this world isn't forever. Now, in this story, he says that there's this guy that's a rich man. He's got a nice house. He's, he lives it up. He's, he knows who God is, he's, he's, but he doesn't really live for God. Outside his gates is a beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus is poor in, the, in this life, but he is rich in faith. He loves God. He lives for God. And then eventually, Lazarus dies. And he doesn't really get any blessings in this world for that, but he, nonetheless, he still is faithful to God. And then he's taken up into heaven, and he gets to be uh, what they call Abraham's bosom. He gets to be by, by Abraham's side. He's in paradise. Well, the rich man eventually dies, and he too also goes, but he goes to Hades. And so he's there, and they could see each other. And the rich man looks over at, at uh, Abraham, and he sees Lazarus there, and he's like, hey, Father Abraham. Can you tell Lazarus to come over and just give me a little water? Because I'm pretty parched here. It's, it's like, I don't know if you noticed, but there's flames on this side of the things, and I'm kind of thirsty. And Abraham said, said listen, brother, you, you had all, everything you needed in, in a past life. You lived it up, right? You lived for yourself. You lived for that past life. You got your reward. He says, this, this uh, Lazarus, he waited. He lived for what came next. And he's getting his reward now. He says, plus, even if I wanted to send Lazarus over to you, I couldn't. There's a big old chasm between us, between the two. It's impossible. So the rich man says, okay, Father Abraham, well, then would you please, I've got five more brothers. Can you just send Lazarus back to warn them about what's coming? And Abraham says, you know, they have the prophets, they have Moses, <laughs> they have the scriptures. They have more than enough. And even if I send a person back from the dead, they're not going to listen to him if they won't listen to Scripture. And again, the warning, right, that God has given us more than enough. There's no more excuses about ignorance or things like this. Who here thinks that you're going to live in your body, this body, forever? None of us. There's no human that thinks that. We know how temporary this life is. So let's not be ignorant and start living our whole life for what we know we cannot keep. Shouldn't we live for what we know is coming to live for a life that we cannot lose?
After this, then Jesus gives four expectations for disciples. He's like, if you want to be saved, you want to go to the kingdom of God, you want to live for the kingdom of God, let me tell you what I'm looking for from my disciples. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to... And he gives us these examples in Luke chapter 17. I'm just going to summarize them, so I encourage you to read them this week. But the first one, he says, promote righteousness. The disciples of Jesus don't teach our ways. We don't tell people to follow us. We tell them to follow Jesus. He says that you are to use your opportunity in, in Christ to be able to teach whatever you want and so lead other people into sin. In fact, he says in this passage, it's better for a person to have a big old millstone tied around their neck than to teach even a child what is wrong. So guard our teaching. Think very carefully about what, how we choose to live. And that's for every Christian, not just for pastors. That we are to proclaim righteousness to our children and to our families. It's not our ethics. It's not our morals. It's not our way. I'm not telling anybody to follow me because I don't have the path to life. Jesus does. And this is how we're supposed to teach and to live our lives. The first one, Jesus expects us to promote righteousness. It's his way. The second one is we're supposed to take active responsibility for each other. He says, if we see somebody, one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, a, 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 a way, going wayward, it's our, every one of our responsibilities to go after him and say, hey, that's not the way to life. The way that you're living isn't good, and it's in contradiction to God's ways. We should all care for one another enough that we're willing to go after each other so we can help each other. And who here in this room doesn't wander from time to time? None of us. Every one of us, we need each other, right? To have a community to say, no, God's way is this way, and to care for each other enough, not to condemn each other like, I can't believe you'd ever sin, because we all do, but to have somebody come up to you and say, hey, I know this is temptation, but this is the way back to life, to take responsibility for each other. Jesus expects that. Third one, he tells us to practice forgiveness. Okay, here's the deal. We're not perfect. I don't even notice that. I'm not perfect. I'm going to step on some people's toes occasionally. Not that I want to, but I'm not perfect. And neither are you. And if we're going to live in community with each other, we're going to have to practice forgiveness. We're going to have to be willing to accept the fact that we're a bunch of sinners that are following after a sanctified Lord and a sanctifying Lord, a God who's going to change us, and he's perfect, but we're not. And as we go along this path, occasionally we're going to bump up against each other, we're going to do dumb things, and we're going to need to forgive one another. And Jesus expects that. He doesn't want a bunch of grumbling and a bunch of bad attitudes on the path to heaven, right? It's not supposed to be a miserable road trip. So we need to forgive one another. And how many times? As many times as it takes. In fact, Peter is all impressed by this. He's like, well, what about like seven times? Because that's a lot. Like if I just punched you in the face and I'm like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I lost my temper. I punched you in the face. And you're like, it's okay. So I said, what'd you say? And I punched you again in the face, right? That's two times. Most people after that be like, I'm not forgiving you again. You're dumb. Seven times? And Jesus is like, I'll tell you what, how about 70 times seven? How about as many as it takes? Because how often does God forgive us? As many times as it takes. And so we should do the same. The last one Jesus says he wants to do is to serve faithfully. If you're in his kingdom, it's an expectation that we work in his kingdom. And he says it's like this. He's like, if you have, uh, if you're a, a person that has uh, maybe some hired staff, right? Maybe in our culture, you, you've hired somebody as a, I don't know, like, but say you hire somebody that's going to be like your housekeeper and your butler or something like this, right? You, you've hired them to do that job. That is their job. 
And you come in, and, and you find them. They're out taking care of the, the house or whatever like that. And you come home. You see that they've done their work. Do you come back to them and say, hey, great, take the evening off. I'm going to make dinner for you. I mean, if their job is to take care of the house and also make dinner, aren't you going to expect them to make dinner? Right? And then after they're done, then they can get their reward, right? And, and in the same way, once they do their job, if you've hired somebody just to do a task, do you, like, give them gold stars all over the place and give them a special reward because they just did the bare minimum, they did their job? Hey, you showed up today, and you did what I paid you to do. Do you get something special for that? No. And then Jesus says about us, he says, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, he's talking about this to the Pharisees and other people. I think oftentimes as Christians, we think that we've done something spectacular just because we showed up on Sunday. Like, this was a horrible, difficult thing. I mean, just show up, and I just did. Or I prayed today. Man, give me a gold star. I forgave my neighbor. What? Understand this. We have to contrast what Jesus' call is to our modern consumer Christianity. And it's a, it's a vastly different thing. To understand this, that, that disciples are contributors in the kingdom, not consumers of it. We can't be looking at churches and our, our life. What church can serve me best? What can I consume best? What has the best things for me and all this? I'm going to consume. Nah, 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 nah. And if it's not exactly like I like, then I'm just going to go my own way. It's not the way the kingdom of God is. He says, you are his child. You are a member of his body. You are a masterpiece in his kingdom. He's crafted you to do good works. He expects for you to do them. And when you do them, don't think you get some kind of special reward. You're doing what you were made to do. And I know this is not like uh, secret sensitive. This is Christ-centered. And I want to live my life for what is true. And I'm glad that I have a king and a master who is worthy of laying my life down for and to live for. He is worthy of everything. He gave his life for me. He gave me eternal life, right? He, he's given me uh, his Holy Spirit. I'm going to live for that. I'm glad he's not one that just panders to the mediocre. He has called us to himself. So let's do our part. And now, to prove that our God is not just this horrible taskmaster who is uncaring, the next thing that he does as he raises Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. So we find that in uh, John 11, it says a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her Mar sister Martha, which we remember this is uh, up there uh, down close to Jerusalem. And uh, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. What? But Jesus was out in town. He hears that his, his best friend, one of his good buddies, is sick. And so he's like, I love those guys, so I'm not going to go. He delayed. Well, why would he do that? Back one verse. When Jesus heard that he was sick, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, Jesus loved Lazarus and his family too much to save them from what God was about to do. And sometimes in our lives, we ask God to save us from a, something bigger that he's doing in our lives, something much better. And Jesus oftentimes loves us too much just to make us comfortable. And so Jesus delays for two days, and then he heads back to Bethany. Well, how, where is this? Well, it's across the river, right? So he crosses back over the Jordan River and heads back to Bethany, which is just a couple miles away from Jerusalem. And that's, of course, where the Pharisees were wanting to kill him the last time he was there. He and so the disciples were like, you're nuts going back there, right? Jesus, we know you can heal from distance. Why don't you do that? 
But he doesn't. He walks back. Thomas, the disciple, actually says, hey, let's uh, die with Jesus, right? If he's going to go back there, let's go with him. This is where it's going to be. And so they show up. They eventually get there to Bethany. And uh, you'll see, actually, it's kind of cool. Today's message, he went from Bethany to Bethany, right? He, he traveled and did some cool stuff along the way. He gets there, and Lazarus is dead. In fact, he's four days dead, which is stinky dead. And uh, when he gets there, uh, he's met by Martha. And Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask, right? And Jesus says, hey, uh, your brother's going to live again. And do you believe this? And Martha says, of course he's going to live again. Like on the last day, everybody gets raised again. I get that, Jesus, right? And Jesus says to her, but hear this, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me is going to live. And even if they die, even though they die, and whoever believes in me actually is never going to die. And I think that's a pretty thing, not in our, our bodies, clearly. But when we face death, we don't just disappear. And we go on from life to life. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? That's a, that's a much different picture of saying, well, of course, I believe that you're gonna, God's going to raise Lazarus on the last day. She says, yes, Lord, I believe this. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who came into the world. Now, this is exactly what Peter had said, right? She's the Messiah, but also God the Son. This is our very first message in the whole thing of why to follow Jesus in John chapter 1. Why would we give up everything and follow him? Because Jesus is God. He's also the Messiah, our Savior, God's anointed one to save us. He is the way. And so Jesus, uh, he hears this. This is a great... uh, a testimony of faith. He tells Martha, hey, go get your sister Mary because I want her to see this. So he goes, gets Mary. Mary comes back up sees, and she leaves real fast. She had a bunch of people that came up from Jerusalem that were in her house. They're helping her grieve, right? They see Mary get up and, and rush out and they think, oh, she's going to go to the tomb and she's going to cry there. So they get up and rush out with her and then all these people are coming up the road and Jesus sees all of these mourners and it says he gets mad. Now, all, the NIV softens a little bit and says he was deeply moved, but the, the Greek, he, he's angry. What was he mad about? He's defeating sin and death. This is the consequence of it. That Jesus is conquering sin and death, and it makes him mad. And he sees it, and he asks his sister, hey, uh, you know, where, where have you laid him? Right? Where, is, where is Lazarus? And, and Mary says, well, come and see. And then we have the shortest verse, and it says, Jesus wept. As simple and profound as it is that God is not unmoved by our suffering, even if he knows that glory is coming on the other side, even though God has good things, he works all things together for your good, it doesn't mean that he's immune to your suffering, that he doesn't care. And he was there and he wept and people said, see how he loved him? See how Jesus loved Lazarus? But then they also said, but, but he could have healed him, why didn't he? And then Jesus, uh, he says, so he gets to the tomb where it's at and He tells them, hey, let's roll away this stone. And Martha, because she's a practical person, says, Lord, he's been dead for four days, and it's going to be really stinky if you pull that stone away. And Jesus says to Martha, didn't I tell you that you'd see the glory of God if you believed? And so they said, all right. So they roll away the stone. And that's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty big thing. Now, I want you to understand this, that Lazarus was still dead, right, when they rolled away the stone? which means that when they opened up that stone, all those fumes of death would have come out, just like Martha had warned, right? The smell, the stench of the death was there. It would have been awful. 
And if you had any hope that maybe Lazarus would come out, if you, your sense of smell would tell you this is a hopeless case. But then Jesus, he looked up to the Father and he prayed. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm glad that you hear me. I'm glad that you're going to allow me. I'm saying these things not for my benefit, but for those that are around so that they would know that you're doing this. And so then, and that you sent me. And so then in a loud voice, so that no one could miss it, he says, Lazarus, come out. And then Lazarus came out of the tomb, all wearing his grave clothes. And he says, change this boy, because that's not that tire for a living man. So Lazarus goes off to be changed, and we get into his clothes again. And then it says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, and they believed in him. You know, because Lazarus went through death, a lot of people came to life. Isn't that profound? That oftentimes God will use this, our suffering to do something powerfully redemptive. You can never know what God is doing through our suffering, but we do know this, that God is doing something even through our suffering. Now, some people believed, but others did not. Remember that there were people in Jerusalem just a couple miles away, the Pharisees, who were telling them, hey, find out where Jesus is. We want to kill this dude. And so some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, no amount of evidence was ever going to be enough for some people. They can even see somebody raised from the dead, and they will still say, hmm, I don't like that. And the Sadducees were now enraged, right? They, they get, they're, they're angry because Jesus raised this guy from the dead, and they're walking around, they have this meeting, they're like, what are we even doing here? We're trying to get this guy, and he keeps like raising people from the dead, and now all these people are believing in him, right? Let's forget the fact that he's raising people from the dead. Right? And so they, they get upset about him, and this made not just the Pharisees angry, but the Sadducees. The Sadducees were like the religious elite. They were like the religious liberals, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection, right? But they had all the positions of power, like the, they were the chief priests and things like this. And so when Jesus raises somebody from the dead, it shows them the world, the fraud that they are, and they're like, we get off this dude. And so we find that the Sanhedrin makes an official decision to kill Jesus at this point. And in John eleven forty eight says, if we let him go like, on, like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation, right? If Jesus keeps doing all of this, then the Romans are just going to quash us. Or maybe he's the Messiah that you've been waiting for who would overwhelm the Romans. Who knows? Who knows? But they're worried about their own lifestyle, their own things. Who cares about Jesus actually possibly being God? And so Jesus was threatening their way of life, so they tried to get rid of him. But the thing is, is that, yeah, Jesus was threatening their way of life. Jesus threatens all of our way of life, doesn't he? What's our memory verse again? Anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross. Isn't that what it says? Jesus threatens our way of life. And some people are willing to have their way of life sacrificed, and others will do everything to keep it, even if it's killing their God. Well, Caiaphas, who was that year's politically appointed high priest, he ends up saying, you guys are idiots. Of course, what we're doing is, is not working. We're trying to do it this, this good way. Then he goes on and says, don't you realize that it's better for you to, that one man should die for the people than the whole nation perish? He's like, let's just, let's just kill Jesus, right? Who cares about being righteous? I know I'm the high priest, whatever, but let's be corrupt about this. Let's kill him, and then if we kill him, our problems are done, right? Well, little did he know that he was prophesying as a high priest, of exactly what Jesus would do. One man would die so that we all could live. But he didn't know that in the Sanhedrin, so they, they decide from that point on, they're going to kill Jesus. And Jesus, of course, knowing these things, he ends up moving from Bethany up to Ephraim. 
which is where he picked up the story next week, and that's about 18 miles north of Jerusalem. And he does a little bit last bit of his ministry there before he comes into this city. So what are the lessons that we pick up from today's passage? A lot of good things, um, some heavy things, but I think the first one is we need to understand our situation, right? That, that eternity is at stake, and not just eternity, my eternity is at stake in this life, right? That, that this is not a game. Jesus, following Jesus isn't a joke. It's not a club. It's not some kind of preference that we pick as long as, well, I like what Jesus said above everybody else. Eternity is at stake, we are deserving of hell. It's what Scripture teaches. It's what we all know in our heart. We deserve the fires of judgment. We are lost in sin. On our own way, we go do what's best in our own eyes, what's right in our own eyes, and we commit all kinds of sins and horrible things. That's why religion has done all kinds of horrible things in the past. As long as we do what's right in our own eyes, we'll do awful things. But one man came to save us, and that man happened to be God the Son. And because of him, there's a way back to God. And I want you to know this, that grace is not going to last forever. We can't just put on grace and say, well, there's a door. That door is going to be shut at some point. Today is the day of salvation. We cannot put off following Jesus forever. So we make every effort to enter through that narrow door. The second thing that we go is we have to count the cost. If you want to follow Jesus, follow Jesus, but recognize that he's not, this is not a bait and switch. Jesus is telling us what it's going to cost. You're going to deny yourself, right? You can't serve two masters. You're going to live for yourself in this life, or you're going to live for him and what's coming next. So if you're going to follow him, die to yourself. That means if it costs you relationships in your family, if it costs you your money, if it costs you your, your deeply held values that are in contradiction to God's ways, if it costs you your dreams, if it costs you your, your, your popularity among people, you have to be willing to give up whatever it takes so you can follow him. But recognize you're only giving up what you're never going to be able to keep anyhow. But you have to die to yourself. And also, let's not pretend to follow Jesus. He was pretty quick to sniff that out. Over and over again, he says, I want disciples, not just followers that are just converts. Which means what Jesus says, his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. We have to center our lives on him in every area of our life. Scripture shows us time, how we, we worship ourselves with our time, with our talents, through our ministry, with our treasure and our tithing and our, and our generosity. Are we worshiping God? Are we really changing our life to obey him, to live according to how he wants us to live? next thing that we have is that we need to faithfully serve. We need to be kind. We need to be humble. We need to be obedient to Christ, just like his warnings, like those four expectations that he has for us. We need to be people that promote his righteousness, right? His ideas of what is true. We need to take responsibility for one another and practice forgiveness. We need to be contributors of his kingdom instead of just consumers of it. Serve, faithfully serve. And the last thing we need to do, just like Martha did, is we need to remember Jesus. Because there's a reason we do this. If I, I wouldn't sacrifice my life for nothing. Right? I'm not going to walk away from all these things that I know I have for something I hope I'm going to get if it wasn't a sure thing. If Jesus isn't really God, if he's not really Messiah, he's not worth following. But he gave us a lot of evidence, did he? He gave us a whole lot of evidence, yes. So let's remember who we're following, that he is worthy, that he knows truth, and he's the only one who can save us. If we can do that, then really giving up the little things is pretty easy because we know what we're giving up is tiny compared to what we gain through following him. I've gone way over, but you know what? It's just one of those days. I was on vacation last week, so I'm a little rusty. I've got some next steps for you, some things to apply this into our lives. The first thing I want to challenge you to do, these are on your connection card. 
The first one is let's memorize Matthew 16, 24 and think about it. Let God do his work in your heart as you now you've memorized it. Start praying that back to God, right? Saying, God, I, I want to be your disciple. Help me to, to, to deny myself. Help me to take up my cross. Show me what that means. Help me to follow you. Show me what that means, right? Take some time this week to do that. Also, read Luke 14 through 17, also John chapter 11. That covers kind of everything I went through, and there's a lot of stuff in there, a lot of meat that I didn't really get to chew on a little bit, and you need to spend some time in God's word, see what Jesus said. Also, I'm going to take some time this week, and I'm going to challenge you to do this too, and count the cost. What does it cost to follow Jesus? Right? What is he expecting from you? Right? And, and are you willing to do that? And what does it mean? Because I'm sure there's areas in every one of our life that we're still holding on to temporary things. Praise God, he still accepts us, right? But count the cost and say, I need to be willing to get rid of these things first, right? So let's look at what Christ is calling us to. Really, if you want to follow him, ask what he's doing. And then the last one is contribute. Your time, your talent, your treasure. Don't be a consumer of God's kingdom. Be a contributor in his kingdom and of his kingdom. And look at yourself. How are you worshiping him with your time? You're you're here, here today. That's fantastic. That's a great step. How are you, how are you centering your, your time around his schedule for you? How are you centering your talents around him? What is your ministry? How are you using the gifts he gave you to build his kingdom first before your own? And how about your treasure? How are you investing the things that God has blessed you with to build his kingdom first? Take time to not just have faith in the, with your tongue, but also in your life so that it's truthful. So that we can follow him in spirit and truth and see his goodness and his glory in every aspect of our lives. Now that's really the greatest call of all mankind. So I encourage you to take those steps today. Take your connection card, drop it in the offering basket, which is at the back there in that box as you leave. I'd appreciate that. Um, as you do that, let me just pray for us as we, uh, as we make our commitments to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a clear God, that you call us to a very clear thing, that, you're, that you, it's not an easy task, but it's a gracious one, Lord, that we are saved by, you, by grace through faith, that you did the hard work, you died on behalf of us, you paid the penalty for our sins that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us. You've given us your word to guide us. You've given us a church to, to help us along as we grow in, in the, the truth and the knowledge and fellowship with you. So, Father, help us not to squander this time and these opportunities. Help us to be a church, a, a congregation, a family of faith that loves you with our whole hearts, that worships you in spirit and in truth. And in that, Father, I pray your Holy Spirit bring that, not just the conviction, but the help we need to follow you today just a little closer. Help us to draw that, Father, in such a way that, that these commitments that we make are not just next steps that we take to appease one another, but, Father, ones that draw us in, into greater fellowship with you. Lord, I ask that you take these things, bless them, grow us in faith and faithfulness, that you would receive glory. Lord, we pray all of this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus.